you know, we, we're seeing the limits of what we can control. And I think wildfire really exemplifies that. But of course, this doesn't end with wildfire. It's all about our relationship with the broader natural world. Like, we've thought that we are the masters here. And, and we're not. Like, I think wildfire is one reminder that we're part of the natural world. We're not in charge of it. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with Nick Mott and Justin Angle, the authors of This is Wildfire, How to Protect Yourself, Your Home, and Your Community in the Age of Heat. Not only are we in the middle of peak fire season here in Montana, but wildfires are raging north of us in Canada, to the west of us in Washington, and all over the country. This is Wildfire offers a little something for everyone. It reflects on the history of humanity's connection to fire, it analyzes how our society arrived at this moment in history, and it recounts stories of those fighting fire and trying to change our relationship to it. It also presents practical advice, choosing your insurance and making your home resilient to burns, packing an emergency go bag, rebuilding after a fire, and so much more. Nick Maud is a journalist and podcast producer. His podcast work has received a Peabody and two National Edward R. Murrow Awards. His print and audio reporting has been published in The Atlantic, NPR, High Country News, and The Washington Post, among many other outlets. Justin Engel is a professor and the Poe Family Distinguished Faculty Fellow at the University of Montana College of Business. His work has been published in the Journal of Marketing, Journal of Consumer Research, and The Washington Post. Nick and Justin together are two of the hosts of the podcast Fireline. Justin, Nick, welcome to The Right Question. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks, Lauren. Justin, I so appreciate how you begin your podcast with you asking your guests where they grew up and what their parents did. Um, And I wanted to start our conversation in a similar way, but I wanted to give that question a bit of uh, a fire-related spin for for our conversation. Um, I grew up in Montana, so I feel like wildfires are an intrinsic part of being braided into the landscape in the way that they are here, and that's kind of part of my identity as a Montanan. I'm wondering where you two grew up and what your experiences were with wildfires. Were they as they were for me, just, you know, a natural part of of growing up, of living in a Western state? Or were they something a little bit more foreign to you? Yeah, I had no connection to fire growing up other than uh, I grew up in New Hampshire. And, you know, my grandfather uh, lived on a large piece of land and we would um, tend to the forest, uh, pick up brush and create brush piles and slash piles and so forth. And, you know, we would light those when it was responsible to light them, often when it was either drizzling or there was snow on the ground. So I had some familiarity with um, managing the landscape and using fire to do that. But but wildfire was never a, a thing in, uh, in my life. Um, I did have one father of a friend who worked for the Forest Service in New England, and he would ship out probably to this part of the uh, this part of the country to fight fires, uh, usually in August, and make a bunch of hazard pay and be pretty excited about it when he got back to town. But um, yeah, that was my only connection as a child. So it wasn't until really moving out west that I started to get exposure to it. Yeah. What about you, Nick? Yeah, I grew up in the suburbs of Kansas City, where at the time there was certainly no wildfire. I learned later in life that much of Kansas and, and Missouri and you know so much of the country is 
fire prone and was shaped by wildfire historically, but I had no idea at the time growing up. After college, I moved west. I uh, took an AmeriCorps job with the Nevada Conservation Corps. And the very first thing we did for the first three months of it was actually simulating the effects of wildfire. It was cutting down pinions and junipers, sort of, you know, pine trees and growing in the high desert that were displacing sage grouse habitat for um, among these, you know, big hillsides that would ordinarily make great, great habitat. But because fire had been suppressed, they were getting overtaken by trees. Um, that would have normally been naturally burnt out. So our job was to simulate wildfire. And while we were doing that, we actually witnessed, you know, actual wildfire out in the distance. And it was the first time that I really began giving wildfire thought because it was part of day-to-day life then. Yeah. So then how did you two come together under kind of the auspice of studying fire? You both produced, Justin, you hosted a podcast, Fireline, um, that debuted in, what, 2021? Um, Mm -hmm. And for listeners who don't know, it won an Edward R. Murrow Award. It was a wonderful, really ambitious series. Um, I'm wondering then what what the impetus for that podcast was. What what brought you two together? And Justin, I'll I'll go back to you. Yeah, so upon moving here in 2012, you know, that was particularly intense, smokier. Um, And I had two young children. Uh, my wife at the time was super concerned about the fire exposure, as as was I, and she took the kids back to Seattle, um, where we had moved from, for a number of weeks during that intense smoke time. And as I was getting to know people in the community, it just seemed like so many people were doing important work in fire. Colleagues on campus at the College of Forestry and Conservation, smoke jumpers, uh, hot shots, seasonal firefighters, fire scientists at the National Fire Lab. Um, so many people kind of working at the tip of the spear. This is real epicenter in Missoula, Montana for fire. And I started wanting to understand like, okay, what is this this phenomenon happening around us that I now had to live with? But also what is the work that all these people are doing? It seems really important and really high level. And as you know, I do a weekly interview show, uh, A New Angle, and I wanted to interview somebody in that space. And it, and as I set out to do that, it became clear that interviewing any one person would be wholly inadequate to the topic. And the idea of, okay, you know, maybe I could do a series of interviews. And it just became immediately clear to me that I needed help to tell a story about this. And if I was confused as a consumer of media about wildfire, I thought that probably others were too. And um, needing help from a journalist to do it because I'm not trained as a journalist um, and that form of inquiry. Uh, so teamed up with Nick, and we also teamed up with a, a student at the time, Victor Yveas, a wonderful young journalist who, who brought a lot of life and important shape to this project as well. So the, the three of us sort of came together um, under the notion of a general explainer for fire. And then, you know, Nick brought his his background with fire, but also with doing incredibly reported uh, environmental journalism for years. So Nick can probably pick up the story from there. Yeah, you know, at the time I had, you know, my curiosity with fire had been piqued by doing that sort of conservation work out west. At the same time, I was, you know, felling trees uh, for sage grouse habitat. I was also doing fuels reduction work. And then I, you know, didn't do that work anymore and became a journalist after a long and circuitous route, which is his own story. But that fascination with fire stuck with me. And I was living in the West, having other encounters with fire and, and reporting in the West. And, you know, as I moved to Montana, started reporting for MTPR, we, I was doing a good bit of fire coverage. So 
And a lot of that fire coverage was stuff just like there's a fire burning. This is what you need to know. This is, you know, it, it's portrayed fire as very scary, um, which it is and can be. And that's important to convey when fire happens. But at the same time, I felt like the coverage of fire that was out there that you hear just isn't enough. And so I was doing the news at the same time I was doing podcasts. And that was sort of long form audio journalism was and is my 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 real passion. So podcasts like, you know, I produced Richest Hill and the podcast Threshold and, and a bunch of other stuff, um, you know, based here in Montana. And so I got word that Justin was in the, was interested in making a podcast about wildfire and uh, was just asked if I wanted to help. And I was like, yes, this is what we need. And uh, that partnership developed from there. Okay, so I'm going to pivot to the book, to the the text inside it now, now that we've kind of gone through process and uh, the trajectory of, of, you know, Fireline to, or even growing up to this book. You write in the book, one could easily trace the relationship of humans and fire as one of ongoing pursuit of control. And control, at least in my education and, and knowledge, has been for so long the human relationship to the non-human world, right? And so putting fire into that context, holding control up against what might be considered its opposite, coexistence, was really, really helpful to me. Um, Justin, will you talk about the ways that this book addresses control and coexistence? Um, there are many different ways, so you could both probably take that question, but Justin, will you begin? Sure. The kind of moment of inspiration on that on that part of the story came, I mean, that part derived from the podcast project where we interviewed this wonderful anthropologist, uh, Richard Rangham, who was at Harvard for most of his career. He was the first to put forth a theory that humans became modern humans the moment we started to control fire. And that set in motion a whole chain of events evolutionarily. Um, we were able to cook our food. Our brains got bigger. We started to become the human species we are now. But central to that is that notion that, oh, yeah, we can control or we think we can control fire. And we started building our lives around fire so much. It was our, our system of producing energy, our system of moving one thing to another, of building or you know, generating the electricity, we need to have this conversation and broadcast this this show all over the country or whatever. Um, so our relationship to burning is deeply ingrained in kind of the operating system of our society. Yet as much as we have tried, you know, ha have told ourselves that we can control this thing and harness it and bend it to our will, climate change is a big result of all that burning, right? So uh, do we control the climate in a way that we made it a lot worse than than it is than it was before? That's sort of a, a thought exercise we could we could go down the road of another time. But but yeah, this 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 notion that we can control fire is largely responsible for where we are now with wildfire. And ironically, we're experiencing all these these increasingly large wildfires that are beyond what humans can control but we sort of controlled in many ways the conditions that made these sorts of fires possible. So the, the notion of control is, 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 um, is pretty complex in, in this story. Yeah, what I'd add to that is that, you know, for a long time, it seemed like we were doing pretty good at controlling the natural world, um, yeah. which isn't necessarily, which looking back is a terrible thing. And it applies to so much more than fire. But when we look at fire and we look at the way fires have been burning, especially over the last 10, 15 years, 
we see that that idea that we can control is out the window. We see fires burning hundreds of thousands or even millions of acres that just are incapable of being contained in the way that we would try to suppress them before. We've seen that our mission of suppression has just doesn't work. We've seen the limits of what we can do. And, you know, I think these last few weeks have been a great example, too, looking at the, the tragedy in Maui and, you know, the, also the Canadian wildfires. You know, we, we're seeing the limits of what we can control. And I think wildfire really exemplifies that. But of course, this doesn't end with wildfire. It's, it's like, like you said, Lord, it's all about our relationship with the broader natural world. Like we've thought that we are the masters here and, and we're not. Like I think wildfire is one reminder that every, we're part of the natural world. We're not in charge of it. Nick, you, you said the word limits, and what sprang to mind while I was reading This is Wildfire was the idea of thresholds. And I've been asking this question of a couple of authors who have appeared on The Right Question um, recently. I'm wondering how the book then approaches the idea of thresholds. If fire is about control, what does fire have to say about thresholds and boundaries and crossing over them or through them and, and where we are right now in this present moment? I think fire has a few things to say about that. But first, I think thresholds and boundaries are really complicated because you could look at our modern fire situation and say, we've entered an era where we're just screwed, right? We could we could look at this and say, you know, look at Maui, look at the Yukon, look at, you know, Paradise, California, look at Marshall Fire in Colorado. Like, this is so beyond, like, we've messed things up and we can't get ourselves out of it. We could think that we've encountered that, we've crossed that threshold, but I don't think we have. You know, fundamentally, this book is one of optimism. I want, or we we hope that readers will leave with a sense of optimism and agency, that there are things you can do on the individual and the community level, and also on the policy level to make things different. So I, I do think that we, there are certain thresholds we've crossed when it comes to climate, when it comes to burning, that things are a lot different than they used to be. But I think ultimately, there are things we can do to live differently with with wildfire. There are things we can do to recognize our role with the natural world. And, you know, in all of that, that's where things get murky and interesting and, and nuanced. Because, like, it's not like you can say, we need to coexist with fire and let's just let everything burn. Because we can't do that either. Like, it's, it's really complicated, the things that we need to do. Uh, but we can do them. Yeah, a couple other thoughts on threshold there, Lauren. W one is that, you know, some of the definitions or operating assumptions that we've had built into our society for a long period of time are just not true anymore. Fire seasons are 80 days longer now than they were 30 years ago. And in many parts of the country, they're fire years. So the Marshall Fire that, that Nick mentioned a moment ago, that occurred over New Year's between 21... 2021 and 2022, that's a period of time where people don't think of experiencing fire. Places where we are seeing fire, like many people sort of thought of fire in Hawaii as, oh, this is the weird, weird thing. That's that's unusual. Uh, although that, that part of the country has a history with fire, but we're experiencing things that are outside of our, you know, what we've considered in our minds to be the norms. Um, and it's kind of in line with another concept of threshold or related concept that uh, Montana State University professor Kathleen Whitlock brought to our attention. She mentioned in one of her interviews that the system is kind of in disequilibrium right now. And 
that is part of why we're seeing stranger things or what appear to us to be strange things happening with wildfire and other clim climate and weather events. So there's some you know, imbalance in the system and we're seeing sort of these, um, what we consider to be unusual events as, as a result of that imbalance. Yeah, what I would just quickly add to that, or maybe just frame it a slightly different way, is that you know for a while it seemed like if we saw a destructive fire season or a destructive fire, that might seem anomalous. And I think we've crossed a threshold where it no longer is. Right. You know that is, of course, the the term "new normal" is what gets thrown out all the time. But we see that not just in terms of fire. We see it in terms of flooding. We see it in terms of storms. We see it in terms of drought. We see it, you know, Flathead Lake being so low this year. Mm -hmm. um, we see it in all sorts of weather phenomena. And I think the, cr the threshold that we have crossed is that climate change isn't just this hypothetical thing lingering in the background that's deniable anymore. Like we're seeing evidence of climate change in, in all of these natural phenomena. You're listening to a conversation with Nick Mott and Justin Angle, authors of This Is Wildfire. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. If you'd like to listen to this conversation again or share it with friends, it can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Nick, you mentioned that you two wanted this book to be optimistic, and it is uh, marketed as a how-to, the subtitle, How to Protect Yourself, Your Home, and Your Community in the Age of Heat. So it is, as you've been saying, a bit of a field guide. And you write in the introduction, not all fire should be extinguished. You just said that, you know, we can't just burn everything either. But you also write, if fire destroys, it also heals. And there are other mentions of healing in This Is Wildfire. And I'm wondering if maybe now is the time we can kind of dive into the ways in which people are using fire to heal the land that we've uh, destroyed, or if not destroyed, we've done great destruction to. Let's talk about those different ways, maybe even the different people who are using fire um, to bring the land back. Yeah, I think that the first thing to understand is that fire is a natural part of the ecosystem, especially here in the West. And that relationship was cut off for more than a century. And because of that, you know, we've reached that state of dis disequilibrium with fire. And one of the really interesting th threads that we follow in the book is this, you know, bringing fire back. And we can start to look at that from before the country was colonized. So for thousands of years, indigenous people had a relationship with wildfire where they utilized it for culture, for hunting, for to revitalize the landscape. Because this low intensity fire could make hunting better. It could spur the growth of, of berries and other plants. It could just, and scientific studies show that indigenous people shaped the ecology of entire ecosystems um, long before the country was settled. Long, long before they were just violently displaced by settlers, I should say. Um, and that relationship was cut off as the country began a mission of fire suppression. At the same time, some people thought that fires should, like this low intensity fire should continue. The government wasn't having it, forged studies. They deployed psychologists to figure out why people were clinging on to burning in some parts of the country. And really that was snuffed out until starting back in, in roughly the 1960s when people started to realize the possible benefits of prescribed burning or burning under very controlled specific situations. And even though science was showing that this could be good for the landscape, good for, good for wildlife, good for forest health, good for just about everything, it still wasn't catching on. And now we're starting to see momentum. 
if you track who's burning and where, what we find is that the Forest Service is not doing a great job of increasing their burning, even though they're saying we want to do this, we want to do better, we want to burn more acres. The Bureau of Indian Affairs is doing a good job of burning. They're, they're the only federal agency whose burning hat did go up. And if we look at this even smaller scale, if we look at specific tribal groups, like here in Montana, the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes have been instituting cultural burning in a really fascinating way. Uh, the late Tony and Cashola Sr. and his son, Tony and Cashola Jr., took us around a stand that they had, they had burned uh, on, on the Flathead Reservation um, for the podcast. And we also tell that story in the book. And it just felt just the place feels – a forest that has been experienced prescribed burning feels fundamentally different than a forest that hasn't. It feels open. It's unclogged. And what they noticed too is that there hadn't been camas, this this root that's culturally important to uh, the tribes as as well as a beautiful flower when it blossoms in, in, a, in generations there. But after prescribed fire came through, it came back in droves. Um, at the same time, we're seeing tribal groups use prescribed fire. We're also seeing prescribed burning associations, like basically these groups of citizens um, in some parts of the West use prescribed fire and come together to get fire done where it matters often most near communities to re- to increase resilience and like make communities less vulnerable on the edges there um, through prescribed fire. And we're seeing other like prescribed fire training exchange- exchanges to get more people trained up to know how to do this, to make it more of a norm. And the, the, just, the sad thing is like 99.9 something if prescribed fires go according to plan, they go just fine. But when that 0.001% goes awry, like looking at New Mexico's Calf Canyon Hermit Peak fire last year, that just gives all prescribed fire a bad name. So when that happened, the Forest Service put a months-long pause on prescribed fire. There's all kinds of stuff that makes it much harder to get done now. And of course, it also takes money. It takes money, resources, and environmental review to get it all done, which also adds a bunch of other barriers. At the top of our conversation, Nick, you mentioned the fires in Hawaii right now. Um, I feel like it's more than timely. We're, we're recording this at the end of August. This is peak fire season for so many people around the world. Um, I'm wondering how you consider this book, how it intersects with the realities of a place like Lahaina, um, the residents there, how this book can serve as a step forward, um, either for them or for us, you know, people outside of grieving communities. It's a little tricky because, you know, a, a lot of the book, well, a lot of the, the the back end of the book talks about individual things that individual, individual homeowners can do to make their homes more resilient to wildfire. You know, the, 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 the event, and that'll be a little consolation to folks in Lahaina that have experienced tremendous loss, loss of property, loss of life. In a lot, in a lot of instances, those types of, um, you know, things like cleaning your gutters and removing debris from around your house might not have helped, right? Like in a case like a fire like Lahaina, we have to look at how the the bigger picture of the infrastructure, right? How how the town was constructed, the building materials that were used, the proximity of buildings to one another, evacuation routes. It's just a much bigger conversation and some systemic redesigns and rethinking need to happen in more and more places where events like that are now more of a possibility. I, I think one of the big takeaways um, of this book that applies to a situation like like Lahaina is like we need to kind of rethink where we build and how we build in a much broader number of places. We've sort of thought of this uh, and when we started this project. We kind of largely thought of it 
as a problem of the Western US and have quickly learned over the course of reporting Fireline, but also building out this book that, wow, this, this, this change is happening as we're doing this project. Fires are getting bigger and then happening in more places at different times of the year in real time, like we're living through this. And so it's more important than ever, but it's also like, wow, what we sort of started this project as thinking of still as maybe out there in the future has been pulled into the present, um, fa certainly faster than I thought. And what happened in Hawaii is a tragedy. And it shows that we can't wait until fire season to be thinking about fire. Like we should be thinking about fire when it's not a threat and how we prepare, you know, that tragedy was in part a failure of communication and evacuation planning. And we need to be thinking about the stuff well ahead of time, especially at the policy level. Like I think a lot of what's going on in, in Lahaina is a result of policy failure and failure at, th at that higher level. Um, we can also look at the reasons for the fire and we can look at some of the, the imagery and reporting coming out of that to help understand more about fire. So, you know, one of the things that fuels fire in lots of the West, we could look at the York Fire in uh, the Desert West in, in Southern Nevada and California this year, and in Lahaina as both sp fueled by invasive species. Like cheatgrass in the West and this other tall grass in Hawaii fills in these gaps in fuel that were naturally occurring. And that's not just climate related. That That is all us related. Like so much about fires is because of us. And it can be climate. It could be where we build. It can be these seeds we spread accidentally. Um, and, you know, also some of the coverage coming out showed like this one house that survived. And the owners didn't intend to make that house fire resilient. But if you look at it, you can see some things that are like a big metal roof rather than a wood roof and few, no fuel right around the house, except there is a wood deck. And I think they just got lucky. Um, but if a community is not doing this stuff as a whole, then yeah, you're pretty out of luck. I think what the discussion needs to be out, away, like coming out of this is what can we do with the policy level to make not just Lahaina, but communities across the country more fire resilient. And that comes in the form of investing in fire resilience. So things like metal roofs, things like, you know, getting the work done around your house to make it more fire resilient and at the community level scale, getting more fire on the ground in terms of prescribed fire and also zoning and ordinances that, you know, mandate new construction to be fire resilient, help retrofit, and also, you know, maybe put some places off limits to build that are particularly fire prone. I think the, the primary piece of advice I would give is you need to think of yourself as part of the solution. And that can be at the, the level of managing your individual home in, in different ways, or it can be as a citizen and engaging in the process and advocating for policies that you think will make a difference and being supportive and informed of agencies that want to introduce fire into the landscape in a responsible way. Um, there are many ways where us as individuals need to take more responsibility for being a part of solving this crisis that we're in. And we do think that it is a solvable crisis. We're optimistic that we can move forward, but it's going to take collective action and each one of us plays a role in that. I would also say, you know, we need to take action, not just to make communities and homes more fire resilient and to have this different relationship with fire. Also, we need to take meaningful action on climate change at a country level scale. And we need huge changes in policies to get that done. So that's definitely part of the solution, too. Justin, Nick, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having us. 
Yeah, thanks, Lauren. Uh, you know, I will mention it's an honor to share the seven o'clock hour with you on Montana Public Radio and can't thank you enough for your support of that project, but also your your interest in, in this book and uh, giving us a moment to talk about it. Thank you. That was Nick Mott and Justin Angle, authors of This is Wildfire, How to Protect Yourself, Your Home, and Your Community in the Age of Heat, out now from Bloomsbury Publishing. Look for more information about Nick and Justin at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by Jake Birch and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Brian Ramirez engineered this episode. All artwork for The Right Question was and is designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridas. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.